Welcome to the Centers for Civic Impact podcast. Focused on the importance of data in a 21st century world, we discuss data-centric topics such as fundamentals of data use, strategies for building buy-in within your organization, the role your community plays in this work, and much more. You've probably heard about the outbreak of COVID-19 cases among workers at meatpacking and poultry processing plants in early March. This created shockwaves in the United States as people became concerned about food shortages and disruptions in the food supply chain. Today, we'll be discussing how even before COVID-19, a team here at Johns Hopkins University was working to understand the interdependencies of food, energy, and transportation infrastructure to help cities and counties plan resilient food systems. We'll take a look at what cities working on food system resilience are focusing on right now, why hazard and vulnerability assessment is a key part of food system resilience planning, and we'll discuss the perspective and role of graduate students working on this project all during the COVID-19 pandemic. My name's Katherine Klosek, and I'm the director of the Center for Applied Public Research, part of the JHU Centers for Civic Impact, and one of the partners on this project. I'm joined by Meg Burke, my colleague, and the Center's Community of Practice Manager. We're very excited to be joined today by two graduate students, one from right here at Johns Hopkins University and another from UT at Austin, who play important roles in the project we'll discuss in this session. Elsie and Claire, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. So let's get started. Elsie, you're a graduate student here at Johns Hopkins University. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you're doing as a graduate student here? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a second year PhD student at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. I am also a research assistant who has been working on this project for about a year now. It's been really exciting that I focus on kind of how global environmental change will impact food systems and what are the strategies that different entities, whether it be individuals or universities or cities, can take to make positive change in this space. And resilience is a really key component of that. I support this project by helping to develop resources and I'm lucky enough to get a, engage in the conversations with the cities. Great. Thanks so much. And Claire, you're a graduate student at the University of Texas at Austin, and I'm wondering if you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work and your role on the project. Yeah, absolutely. So I am a now fourth year PhD student in community and regional planning at the University of Texas at Austin, and my specialization is on food systems planning. So generally, I'm really interested in um, how we can apply the resilience framework to food systems, considering some of the opportunities to use resilience and then maybe some of the challenges that come along with that. And then more specifically, I'm interested in the role of local government and where they can kind of intervene to increase resilience. I previously worked at the city of Austin helping to build out a regional food systems planning process. And the food policy manager, Edwin Marty, told me about the opportunity to participate in the community of practice. And just given the overlapping interest, I was very excited and jumped on the opportunity. So it's been, it's been a really exciting opportunity to hear from all the different cities. Thank you so much. Um, and so we've, we've said the words food system resilience a few times, but we were hoping that you could uh, break it down a little bit more for us. Elsie, what, what is food systems resilience? 
Food system resilience is really interesting because there's a lot of different definitions of it. And people who are coming from more of the food lens might have one definition of it versus someone who comes with a little bit more of a resilience framing might think of it differently. For me, um, and kind of how we think about it oftentimes, it's the ability of a system to be able to withstand disruptive events. If there is a flood or some other disruptive event, is the food system strong enough? Are there enough kind of components of it and things happening at the same time that it doesn't cause food shortages? Or you talked initially kind of about some of the outbreaks of COVID-19 and the meatpacking plants. Did that cause the food system to completely fall apart? Um, and so food system resilience is really is the system able to be strong enough not to have those issues? But then also, is it equitable? Um, if something does happen, is it able to quickly recover to a state that is stronger or even better than the previous one? So there's a lot of different layers to the definition of it, which I think is really cool and interesting that it's not just something that everyone uses the same definition of. And Claire, from your perspective as a practitioner and researcher, would love to hear your perspective on why focusing on food systems resilience is important, especially now. Yeah, I think that's a great question. It's been really interesting, I think, with COVID to have kind of the notion of resilience resurfacing and people engaging more. And I think what's been maybe a silver lining to COVID has been that people outside of the food system are starting to think about the food system a little more critically and think about what resilience might mean. And as we know, kind of all of these systems, food systems, transportation networks, et cetera, um, they're all interconnected. So I think it's a really, a really nice opportunity to review kind of what are some of the challenges that we're facing and how can we move forward? And I think to, to Elsie's point, you know, Typically, when we've thought of resilience, you know, it started, the concept was popularized, I guess, in the 60s and 70s. And the initial thought was, okay, how do we bounce back as quickly as we can? As the concept has evolved, as it's been applied to different fields, um, especially very recently to food systems, um, a question that's been coming up, especially as it relates to equity, is, you know, how do we transform the system? So what are the changes that we need to make in kind of adaptive capacity and um, other those wonky terms of resilience uh, to really get to a place that we, we are happy with? When it comes to cities and how cities are facing food system resilience and what they're thinking about, I'm curious, what challenges do you think that cities are facing when they're thinking about building a resilient food system? Yeah, I think that's that's a great question. I think to my previous comment, the concept of resilience um, and applying it to food systems is fairly new. So it's been really exciting to be a part of the community of practice because I think those best practices for what it looks like is still to be determined. But I think there have been kind of three main things that have been challenges across the cities that has come out of the community of practice. And I think the first to Elsie's earlier point is really just equity. How do we ensure that when we're thinking about food system resilience and when we're defining it, we have kind of a shared definition of what that means and that we're including the people who are most vulnerable right now in the conversation? And then second, I would say collaboration um, has been a really interesting piece of that question. So figuring out how do we enhance our kind of collaborative nature? 
one important part of the resilience theory is multi-scalar networks and like connectivity. Um, and I think a lot of times we think about uh, the physical infrastructure, but there's also kind of the, the social aspect, that kind of soft infrastructure. And so how do we really make sure that the network has the different people involved, that information is flowing in an appropriate way, um, and that we can get funds delivered in an efficient way? And then I would say, lastly, um, I think the question of data is just a kind of perennial question, especially during COVID. I think previous to COVID, a lot of the cities had a certain, you know, they had done some type of analysis related to food insecure populations. So, for example, in Austin, you know, we have our food environment analysis. But with COVID came another wave of people who are not a part of that kind of initially food insecure group, right? So how do we identify where this new group is that maybe just lost their job or something? I think data and how do we get real-time data has been a, a big challenge for cities. You've each mentioned the community of practice. And so I thought we could go a little bit deeper into the actual eager project. And so Elsie, maybe you could talk a little bit about the community of practice and how it relates to the larger eager project. The community of practice is really pulling together a grouping of cities. The idea is to have a diversity of thoughts and opinions and maybe people who haven't collaborated in the past on things. And in creating this community of practice, it was intentional to try and bring people who are from different cities that are at different stages in kind of their food system resilience planning process so that they could talk and learn together and that we could co-develop resources that could be used by a variety of different end users so that they could go through the process of kind of improving their food system resilience. So at the end of this community of practice, one of our goals is to have a toolkit or a suite of resources that could be used by other cities or other people who work closely with local governments to assess where they're at and kind of what strategies they could come up with to improve their own food system resilience. In terms of where it fits into the larger project, it fits into a bigger um, program that is funded by um, the National Science Foundation to look at the interdependencies of food with transportation and with energy and doing a lot of different kind of assessment and modeling work to understand how at large levels these things are working together. The nice component of kind of adding on the community of practice to this is what do we do with all this information that's being developed? How does it get translated? How does it get used? And to Claire's earlier point of data, are there ways that there's data gaps that we can partner as kind of um, research universities with practitioners to think creatively about what are some of the challenges and if there's ways we can work together on them. Claire, as a member of the community of practice, um, love to hear a little bit about your experience with the conversations or the resources and tools that have been shared. Yeah, well, I have to, I just have to say, um, I know, to my understanding, the community practice was built and decided before COVID hit, but it's been such a timely um, experience. I think one of the really challenging things for cities is, you know, their focus really on emergency response, right? And it's been this complete shift in a lot of the way that they're thinking about their work, doing their work, moving from, you know, congregate feeding to non-congregate feeding. 
and having the opportunity to actually carve out time in the community of practice to sit and kind of reflect on various aspects of the way they think about resilience and do their work has been incredibly useful. You know, I know I can remember one of the tools that we used was kind of a baseline assessment to say, okay, kind of what are the assets on like within the city and how can we leverage those assets to kind of increase our resiliency? And I think that was just incredibly useful to take the time to try to map that out and think about, you know, the intellectual assets, the environment, the political assets, um, and just to hear the differences across the cities was really interesting as well. So I'm curious about if you could tell us maybe one thing about the project or this experience working with the cities and this community of practice that's been really exciting for you or unexpected that um, has come out of one of our meetings. Sure. Um, there's been a lot of things. And so it's hard for me to pick just one, but I think in reflecting on it, I've just loved getting to see how different people have used their unique perspectives to bring it to this work. So some of the cities, um, the people are taking a little bit more of a policy lens and thinking about it from that angle, while others are really focusing on the emergency food response. Some are looking at it from resilience from a climate perspective and how food um, is a part of that. And others, again, are thinking more, a little bit more programmatically about it. So I've just really enjoyed getting to see the diversity of perspectives. And I think it speaks to the fact that there's not one approach or one thing that cities can do that's necessarily going to end in food system resilience, that they can take this and go in their own direction and identify opportunities and see where it can be integrated into it. And Claire, could you tell us something that's been exciting about this process that you've experienced? I would say similar to Elsie, there's a lot of stuff, so it's hard to hard to just choose one. So I'll choose two. So one of the days was on um, hazard and vulnerability, and I think the food system is incredibly complex, and it's very hard to simplify the diversity and interdependencies, and then also resilience. And the concept is really complex, so overlaying those two adds just an incredible amount of complexity. And I think it was really exciting to have Johns Hopkins, I think, go through how to think about hazards and vulnerability. So there is a tool that they provided. It's called the food system fault tree. And basically what it does is it helps to kind of categorize and point to where failures happen across the food system. If food is not accessible, is it because of high prices? Is there a significant decrease in net income of a family or things like that? But actually helping to kind of go through the intricacies of that was really useful. And then also thinking about, you know, if you're talking about resilience concepts like adaptive capacity, or if you're thinking about redundancy or diversity, what does it actually mean to try to operationalize those as a city? And that was incredibly useful. You know, being a researcher, and Elsie and I have talked about this, there's just a significant opportunity um, to really try to document some of this work and to build kind of a, a literature base that can be really helpful for, you know, for cities across the country. Claire, you just mentioned uh, the, the term accessibility, and um, we I learned from collaborating with you all on this project that a functioning food system um, means that food is available and accessible as well as acceptable. And I was hoping that uh, you could elaborate on what acceptable means in this context and why is that important? 
When I think of the term acceptable, I think back to kind of how we originally thought of hunger. We were trying to get food to people as quickly and as efficiently as possible. It wasn't necessarily a concern about how nutritious is this food or how culturally acceptable is this food? Is this food people want to eat, if that they can eat, that they're medically that they can eat? And I think in times of crisis, um, especially crises we're not used to, the typical response is, okay, we got to get shelf-stable food out to people as quickly as possible. So the question of acceptability is more, how do we ensure that the most vulnerable populations that are hit by this are receiving food that is helping them? And that is the, you know, that is nourishing them. Yeah, I think that that's an excellent um, kind of description of it. I think I think about it kind of to the point that food is really personal and food ties people to culture and to experiences. And I think in a lot of ways, that's kind of what the acceptability gets to is that it's more than just being able to physically access your food and being able to afford the food and having the food on the shelves that there's this other component of it that you have to want to enjoy the food and feel like that it contributes to who you are. There is this deep tie to kind of the more cultural identity component of it that sometimes in other systems, I feel like isn't there as much. So shifting gears just a little bit, I'm wondering if you could share your perspective about working on this project during COVID. We touched on the fact that the timing of this project kind of, it started kind of before COVID, but really kind of got going right through um, the crisis. So I'm wondering if you could speak to that as part of the next generation of leaders who are going to be working on food systems and public health. So Claire, maybe I'll turn to you to answer that first. I think there's been a tremendous amount of uncertainty with COVID and how long it's continued, how long it will continue. And I think to Elsie's point, there's a significant tension between trying to do kind of emergency response and act quickly and be kind of nimble in this moment of crisis, but then also thinking about how are we really going to build the food system that we want and what does it look like to make some of the transformations that we need to make to have a food system that is equitable, that is sustainable. It's been really, really exciting to be a part of the community of practice because there's such diverse experiences across the city. And I think hearing from other practitioners and having that sharing of information and kind of real-time questioning and brainstorming has been um, really useful. And I think, you know, as I guess both a practitioner and a researcher, as I, I mentioned earlier, there's not a lot of research that practitioners can look to. And so I think this is an exciting time in terms of research to think about you know, how can we really use um, this crisis as a, a learning opportunity for the future? And Elsie, do you want to add to that question? Sure. I think in many ways I share similar sentiments that it's been both an incredibly interesting and a very challenging time to try and work on this. I think it's important to acknowledge that from I'm not on the front lines of kind of providing emergency food response and to all of the participants in the community of practice that are doing that and are still showing up and engaging in these conversations that really owe deepest gratitude for. 
but I think more personally, kind of how this has impacted my thinking is that I feel like there's kind of three main things that kind of has reshaped um, how I think about this because of COVID and Claire touched on a couple of them. I think the first would be that it really just points to the underfunding and the underappreciation of public health. These food systems, public health systems, um, weren't really equipped for this scale of a disruptive event or this long term of a disruptive event. I think the other part is equity. COVID-19 has impacted everyone, but it has not impacted everyone equally. How do you understand those impacts? But more importantly, how do you make sure that those that are the most vulnerable and those that are the most impacted are the ones that are receiving the assistance first and the most assistance? The third part, and one we haven't touched on as much, is the potential for multiple disasters to occur at the same time. We can look right now to wildfires that are all across the West Coast or the hurricane seasons. And it wasn't something that I had registered quite in the same way that disasters that are occurring at the same time or those that are going to occur shortly following one another and how that might be different, how our response needs to be different, how we need to think about that. It's not just one thing, but it's a lot of things um, that can happen. For cities that might be listening and thinking about resilience planning in their own city, what would you all recommend or some kind of initial steps to get started with that work? Yeah, well, I think that's a great question. It's been really interesting. So I'm very you know, bias towards planning as a um, PhD student in planning. Uh, and I realized not everybody loves plans. Some people think that they become like obsolete very quickly after they're written. Um, but I think, you know, we've had a pretty hard time, quite frankly, in Austin, getting stakeholders to get behind the idea of a plan. And so this is just a regional food system plan. That's how we were thinking about it. And I now because of COVID, that's shifted to, oh, we need a resilience plan and there was a kind of like immediate interest. But I think this community of practice is like, a, what's gonna come out of it is gonna be a great, great starting point for that. Cause I think, you know, there isn't really a lot of research kind of documenting that effort or that work. And so um, there are some great tools out there that, you know, can help with certain aspects like data, but there's, there's not that much out there. I think to, any cities that might be listening to this, part of the takeaways that I've come up with is you can get started anywhere, um, that there's certain things that are helpful in the process, but part of it is just starting and acknowledging that this is something that feels important and valuable to work on. It can come from an individual, it can come from leadership, it can come from a lot of different spaces um, within the city, it can come from partnerships with academic institutions, that there's many different ways that this can look. And then hopefully things like the toolkit or talking to other cities or case studies or learning from others can help to think about what's going to work best in each unique situation. But kind of that initial first almost hurdle of saying that, yeah, we're going to we're going to try and work on this and then finding the resources that can support that. That's great. And building off of that, I'm curious if you both could give maybe some specific examples of how cities have gotten started addressing resilience. Um, Claire, I don't know if you want to start maybe with some examples from uh, your work with the city of Austin. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the city was tasked with organizing food emergency response for Austin, the city of Austin's Office of Sustainability, starting with getting as many stakeholders together as they could to share information, to understand what was happening, to understand kind of the resources that were needed. And so that was a call that was occurring two times a week since the um, crisis began. And I think, you know, one kind of nice entree into the community of practice was really doing the stakeholder mapping. So saying, okay, who are the different stakeholders who are involved and what are their roles and responsibilities? One thing that's really challenging is if you don't have a plan in place and you're doing a lot of real-time problem solving, thinking about kind of the network of stakeholders that are involved can be really useful because it helps you to start thinking, think about roles and responsibilities. In multiple conversations in the community of practice is kind of the counterfactual question of like, if we had this, then what would have been different? And a lot of times that's actually kind of about relationships and, you know, the interdependencies between different levels of government, um, between city government and different kind of like grassroots organizations or so like, what are those relationships that we have? And like, how might that be a starting point to thinking about um, resilience? Elsie, were there any examples maybe that were shared by some of the other cities in the community of practice that you think would be relevant to share? Yeah, I think I can talk a little bit about some of the work that's been happening in Baltimore, because in many ways it serves as inspiration and guidance to some of the community of practice tools um, that we are adapting with um, the larger group. But a few years back, the city of Baltimore started thinking about this um, in response to the death of Freddie Gray and um how that disrupted the food system and then sparking this conversation about kind of how to make the food system um, stronger to these disruptive events. There's the Baltimore Food System Resilience Advisory Report, which was a long process of working with the many different stakeholders um, within the city, as well as the larger community to get their input into kind of what a resilient food system would look like and then what some of the strategies to get there would be. And they got started um, kind of following a disruptive event. And so I think that's one way that sometimes this can occur. And I think now with COVID-19, everyone has unfortunately experienced that, that we have an example of how our food systems are vulnerable. And to my earlier kind of point about what I really like is that people are taking this and coming at it from very different ways that um, we have someone who is involved in policy making and kind of how they're approaching this and their goals for it. We have other representative um, from a food policy council and how they are coming to this work and a partnership between the council and the government. So there's a lot of different strategies and kind of approaches that people have taken from it. And I've really enjoyed getting to see those. So have I. Um, definitely. Thank you both for sharing those. So we've talked about a lot of things today, but my question really is, what gives you hope? Claire, can I kick that to you to answer first? Yes, that's a great question. I think a lot of things, but I would like to say that I think having this community of practice and during a time when we're experiencing uncertainty in so many ways and so many shapes, that people are still willing 
to kind of sit with their experiences, to participate in this community of practice, to really kind of reflect on the work that they're doing, where they want to go, has been really exciting. It's given me a lot of hope. And then I just think in general how community members and other stakeholders outside of the community of practice are responding to the crisis. You know, here in Austin and then just hearing from other cities, there's been a ton of kind of innovation and support, school districts stepping up to feed families um, in addition to the children, cities stepping up to manage an array of stakeholders in a very, very kind of challenging and complex like political landscape. So I feel hopeful about the ability to see kind of an opportunity to create change that we want to see in our food system. Great. Thank you. So Elsie, it's your turn. What gives you hope? I think one of the things that gives me the most hope is partnerships. I think that there's this acknowledgement now that these really complex, really challenging issues that we're facing require people from different disciplines and different backgrounds to work together in a respectful manner where they can co-create solutions. And I think that there's this need for people to work together and to acknowledge different forms of education and practice and what they all bring to it and the different skills and lifting those up and acknowledging them. And I think that we're going to have a really bright future if we can mobilize these partnerships. The other part would just be people. And that's not very specific, but when I think about the community of practice members who are so, so busy, but they are still dedicating themselves to this challenge and people are showing up for each other in small ways and big ways. And I think that that's really inspiring. It gives me a lot of hope that um, we're going to be able to work through challenging situations and come up with innovative ideas to kind of prevent future ones from impacting us in the same way. Elsie and Claire, I just want to say thank you so much for taking time to join us today. It was great to hear about your perspective on food system resilience and hear about the important work that you're doing as part of the next generation of leaders who are going to be working on food systems and public health. Thank you all so much for listening today. And to learn more about us, our work, and communities of practice, visit civicimpact.jhu.edu.